I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 13 through 21. Luke 12, 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there, will, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. September of 2009, uh, there was an elderly gentleman lived in Saluda, South Carolina, named Lonnie Holloway. Lonnie passed away in September. Lonnie had two great loves in his life. One was his wife. The other was his 1973 Pontiac Catalina. His wife had passed on a few years before, so Lonnie's final request was to be buried in his Catalina next to his wife with his guns sitting on the seat next to him. Now, uh, he loved the Catalina. He didn't necessarily love the guns, but he was worried that somebody might use the guns to hurt somebody, so he asked them to be put on the seat. So they, they embalmed Lonnie, and they put him in his car, and that's what the burial looked like right there. There were a number of people at the funeral. Uh, you know, everybody knew that Lonnie was, was a neat old guy and wanted to satisfy his last request. But there were a number of people that said things like, well, Lonnie loved that car so much he wanted to take it with him. And so that was kind of the sentiment. He took it with him. i got to tell you, he didn't. <laughs> and our thought for today is you can't take it with you. Now, we know that, right? We know that. We're going to look a little bit deeper at that today. So you can't take it with you. So here we are. Another familiar parable in chapter 12 of Luke. Uh, we got to understand the setting here. We've talked a lot about context. We talk a lot about if we understand what goes before a parable, all of the events that happened before it, that we'll understand the parable and that maybe a deeper teaching in it. This one comes in the middle of Jesus teaching about eight seemingly unrelated issues. Now, there's some before and some after. There are four before and four after. Here, here's the teaching in the entire chapter of chapter 12 of Luke. So he, he teaches on the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in verses 1 through 3. In verses 4 through 5, he talks about fear and its implications. In 6 and 7, he talks about provision, in particular God's provision, and perhaps some of the struggles we have with that. In verses 8 through 12, he talks about trusting in the Holy Spirit in a time of hardship. So we have four teachings, 
Then we have the parable, and then they're followed by four more teachings. In verses 22 through 31, he teaches again on worry and trust and where our trust should be. In 32 through 34, he talks about God's promises. And in 35 through 48, he talks about being prepared for Jesus to come back. And in 46 through 53, uh, 49 through 53, he talks about knowing the truth. There are eight lessons here, bracketing this parable. And if we understand the lessons, we understand that even though they're seemingly unrelated, the parable becomes the anchor for everything Jesus wants to teach in this chapter. Everything kind of goes right to the parable. And so Jesus wants to illustrate this. And once again, we're going to find out how important context is uh, if we're going to get all the truth we want out of a passage. Sermon's title today is The Parable of the Rich Fool. This is part three in our series, Stories That Changed the World. So our parable itself rolls out in five separate scenes, five acts, if you want to call them that. We have the prelude, the kind of the setup, verse 13 and 14. We have the precaution in verse uh, 15. The problem is presented in 16 and 17. Then there's a presumption, a series of presumptions, actually, in 18 and 19. And all of that leads to a peril that we see in verse 20 and 21. Now, again, there are four lessons to be learned before the parable and four lessons to be learned after the parable. And let me tell you this, if, if you understand the first four, if you hold on to them as we go through this, I will guarantee you the second four will set you free today. So if you're looking for some freedom, we can show you the path to it. So let's take a look at this prelude and let's have an understanding of these first four lessons so that we can understand the context of the prelude. In verses 1 through 3, Jesus dealt with the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They were living unholy lives, and they were teaching holiness. They were in every way, shape, and form saying, do what I do, do what I say, but don't necessarily do what I do. And so he warns them that there's a judgment coming for those people that, that are not living truly for God, that there will be a day of reckoning for them. That led to a teaching to the disciples about fear, uh, actually to this entire crowd about fear, because the Pharisees were the ones who had control, the Pharisees were the ones who had authority. What Jesus wanted to say to the crowd was, don't be afraid of what the world throws at you. Don't be afraid of your circumstances. Don't be afraid of people and things and events. If you want to have some fear that is healthy, fear God. Now, when we talk about fearing God, we're not talking about thinking that God's going to get us for some reason. It is a reverential awe of God. Instead of being afraid of people around you, circumstances around you, fear God. Why should we fear God? Well, that's the third lesson in verses 6 and 7, uh, because God is our provider. God is our protector. And, and so we go to our fourth teaching in 8 through 12, trust in the Holy Spirit. Trust in the Holy Spirit and don't worry, he's with you. Don't worry, you're not alone. Don't worry, you're not abandoned. Don't worry, in your hour of need, he will give you what you need. You just have to turn towards him. He will walk you through the harsh waters you may be navigating. He will get you through the hard portions of your life if you just trust in him. He will show you the way. In other words, 
what's embodied in that teaching is you don't have to depend on yourself. If you feel like you don't have the, resor have the resources to handle the situation, you don't have to tough it out. You can turn to God. You can turn to the Holy Spirit in you, and he'll show you how to get through. All of that leads up to the prelude of this parable. Jesus is in the middle of talking to the crowd. He's got these profound teachings. They may not seem related at first, but if somebody's listening carefully, they will see that they are. And there's this, this guy shouts out. We don't know who the guy is, but he just speaks up. And, and you know what this is like. You're in the middle of, maybe you're in a Sunday school class. Maybe you're in, in a classroom at school, and somebody asks a question that seems unrelated to what's going on. And you kind of go, well, what is that about? I thought we were talking about the Holy Spirit here. So this guy shows up with what seems like an interruption, and what he wants to know is if Jesus will intervene between him and his brother over their inheritance. Now, we don't know anything about the details here, okay? We, we, we don't know who the guy was. We don't know what the brother was. Uh, all we know is that this guy wants Jesus to do something for him. And, and if you look at the passage here, he's not asking him to mediate. He's not asking him to arbitrate between the two, between him and his brother. He just wants Jesus to go make his brother give him part of the inheritance. Now, maybe the people there knew a little bit more about the story. We don't. We don't know if he's been robbed of his inheritance. We don't even know if the father's dead. All we know is that this guy wants part of his inheritance from his brother. And what he really wants is he's heard this teaching... And we know that everywhere Jesus went, he spoke with tremendous authority. People would listen to his teaching. Where does this teaching come from? This is so deep. He does it with such authority. So he sees Jesus as a resource. He sees Jesus as a way to get what he wants to get. He wants Jesus to do something for him. And maybe the brother's not abiding by the law. But I'll tell you one thing that, that would have impressed itself upon the crowd, the inheritance to the Jews was everything. Who got the land? Who got the livestock? Who got the namesake? Who got the heritage? The inheritance was vitally important. So the crowd, even if they didn't know the whole story, would have been standing there going, oh, this is interesting. Let's see what he's going to do. Because if this man is denied his inheritance, he has no namesake. He has no identity. They identified with the land. They identified with their family, with their village. So everybody's got, got their attention focused on this guy here. And, and they're wondering what Jesus is going to do. Now, why are they wondering what Jesus is going to do? The guy wants Jesus on his side. That's what he's demanding. And isn't that what the Jews thought Jesus came to do, to be on their side? He, they expected Jesus to align themselves with the Jewish people against the Romans. They expected Jesus to vindicate them. They expected Jesus to deliver them from the oppression that they had been under for almost 2,000 years. The, the Assyrians and the Chaldeans and the Babylonians and the Persians and, and all these people. And they expected this was going to be their moment. If this guy's really the Messiah, he's going to be on our side against our enemies. So so here's an opportunity for Jesus to kind of show whose side he's on. And what does he do? He says, man, 
who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now listen, when he utters this word man, he kind of spits it out. This isn't a friendly, this isn't a brother, this isn't a follower, this isn't a, well, let me tell you something. This is a what is your problem man type thing. And when he says, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? Check this out. The you is plural. He's not talking to the God. Now, he may be talking to the family. He may be talking to the crowd. And he's not saying, I'm not a judge. He's not saying, I didn't come here to judge because we know that he came to divide, right? Okay? But what he's saying is, I didn't come here to settle your family squabbles. I didn't come here to be on your side. I didn't come here as a way for you to get what you want. Why did Jesus come? Well, there's teachings all over the place, and there's enough truth to all the teachings about why Jesus came that it sounds pretty attractive. Jesus came because he wants you to be healthy. Jesus came because he wants you to be wealthy. Jesus came because he wants you to be happy. Jesus came because he wants you to know your identity and who you are in Christ. Jesus came because he wants you to have this or this or this or this. And I love all that because there's just enough truth to it that it sounds attractive to me. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus did not come to bring us anything. Jesus didn't come to present us with anything that we wanted. Jesus came to present us to the Father. We're the gift. We're the bride. Jesus is not a way to get the things that we want. Well, I thought if I believed in Jesus, I would go to heaven. Really? Yes, if you believe Jesus, you go to heaven. But if your goal is to get to heaven, you might be off a little bit because the goal is to be one with Christ because he's one with the Father. I told you before, I think the evangelical church has oversold heaven. Just believe in Jesus and you go to heaven. He's your ticket. Jesus is not a way to get what we want. Jesus is a way to God. So he uses this opportunity to teach about, well, you know, when we think about what Jesus is going to teach about, he's going to teach about evil, bad theology, to teach about covetousness. Now, what is the nature of covetousness? Well, I, I think we all understand that covetousness is, well, my neighbor just showed up with a brand new car. I think I need to buy one too. As a matter of fact, I'll get one a little bit flashier than his. So we all get that. But covetousness really is being unhappy with what God's given us. Covetousness is really not being satisfied with what we have and wanting more. Wanting more than what God gives us. Rather than trusting that he's given us all that we need. So if we've been paying attention, this whole issue of covetousness is what those first four lessons were about. It's at the root of those first four lessons. About trusting God to provide or deciding whether or not you're going to trust God to provide or you're going to trust in yourself. You're going to trust in your own resources. So... If we understand that, then we understand that the prelude is not an interruption in what Jesus is doing. It's an opportunity for him to teach. And so 
the prelude becomes an opportunity to teach, and what he teaches very first is a precaution, our second scene. And he said to them, take care, and now he's talking to the crowd, take care and be on your guard, and the word for on your guard is a very strong word. It means to, to guard yourselves as if fighting a deadly foe. So, take care and guard yourselves as if fighting a deadly foe against all, not evil, not bad doctrine, against all covetousness. Fight covetousness as if it's an an evil and deadly foe. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And the abundance here means more than you need. More than you need. So you see how all this fits in with these four teachings? All about being thankful for what you have and not, not worried over what you don't have, not anxious, uh, not wanting more, not being upset over what you don't have. Now, all that leads right into the parable where the first part of the parable, we see this problem. And that's in verses 16 and 17. Jesus is, is still speaking to the crowd and he tells them about a wealthy farmer. Now, again, there's a cultural implication here that we have to understand because in that first century Jewish culture, a wealthy farmer uh, meant a number of things that all of which pointed towards the favor of God. So he was a farmer who had an abundance of crops. That meant that God had blessed everything he had planted, uh, had blessed him with an overabundance, and he was wealthy on top of that. That meant that he had experienced God's favor in a number of ways. So wealthy farmer, and the crowd's going, oh, this is a good thing. This is a good Jewish man right here. And it, 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 we see this double blessing, and he's, his crops are so plentiful that he's filled his barns. Now, we live in northern Virginia, central Virginia, and we're, we're kind of rural, still kind of, right? But when I say farm, we've all got an idea in our head, uh, barn. Uh, we've all got an idea in our head what a barn looks like. It's big, it's usually red, it's got some white boards on it, and there's some cows going in and out, and some hay in the top, and so on and so forth. That's not what the Jews thought. So uh, I was in Israel uh, two years ago. Uh, we were in the Valley of Megiddo, Valley, the Armageddon Valley uh, in Megiddo, and we saw a barn, and here's what a barn in the first century looked like. They were in the ground, and they were huge. That is typical there. That's about 30 feet deep and about 40, 45 feet wide. And so that is what the crowd is thinking. That's the type of barn that this guy has, 30 feet deep, 40, 45 foot wide. He has at least two of these because it says barns. They're plural. And the implication is that he, he probably has quite a few more. So his, his problem is that he's, the barns are full. He has more than he can store. And he's trying to figure out what to do with all this stuff that he has. Now, that leads him to make a number of presumptions and we see the presumptions in 18 and then 19. Number one, his decision is to build bigger barns. Uh, so he's got more than enough. He's got more than it would probably take him a lifetime to go through. Um, he's looking around. He doesn't have anywhere to put it. So it, it says he's going to tear down the barns. Actually, the phraseology is that he's going to empty these barns out, put everything to the side, and re-excavate them. He's going to make them larger than what they were. 
So his, his problem is he's got an overabundance. But I'm going to tell you something else. He's got a bigger problem than just overabundance. And it doesn't take very much examination of this passage to see what his real problem is. Because if you look at these four verses right here, you will see the word my four times. So my applies, it shows up four times in four verses. The word I shows up six times. And if you take a look in the original Greek, it's actually there eight times. In four verses, he talks about my and I at least 12 times. His problem is not the size of his crop. His problem is the size of his ego. It's huge. He's proud. So we have this, this man is selfish. He is untrusting. He's worried about tomorrow. He's greedy. He's so concerned about tomorrow that he's, he's making all these preparations. And above all and beyond everything else, he is self-reliant. He thinks that he's got the solution to all this. That he, uh, he's found a problem in his life that's kind of pointing forward. He wants to get security as he goes forward. And he says, I have to do something. You ever been confronted by a set of situations that were a little overwhelming and decided, I've got to do something? That's what he just did. He's not only self-reliant, he's self-determined. And here, here's, here's what's at the root of all of this self-centeredness. It, it's not there in the text, but we know it's in his heart. He believes that all this stuff is going to make him happy. I mean, doesn't he say that? If I, if I expand these barns, if I make them bigger, then I can party, I can eat, drink, and be merry. I mean, that's where the phrase comes from right there. I'll have a good time. I don't have to worry about anything. I'll be as happy and blissful as I can possibly be, perhaps indefinitely. So as much as he talks about himself, and that reveals his problem of self-centeredness, notice what is not mentioned here. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of gratefulness. There's no mention of being thankful for the abundance he has. And perhaps even more revealing, there's no mention of other people. Now, he's a farmer. He lives in this agrarian culture. All of those crops were planted, harvested, and brought to the storehouse by laborers who worked day to day. They were poor people. They were hard workers. And it, it doesn't even occur to this guy that, well, I've got more than I need right here. Maybe I can split it up for all these people that help me. Maybe I can do some good for the community. Maybe I can extend myself a little bit and, and help people that can't normally help themselves. It doesn't even occur to him. This guy finds security in his possessions. He finds security in his planning. He's got desires, and he has a design to fulfill them. So he's made several presumptions here. And we have to look at them carefully. We're going to understand the full parable. Number one, he presumes that having all these belongings is going to make him happy. Now, we see that, but... Underneath that is the presumption that he has a right to be happy. That somehow 
the world, God, owes him happiness. And we've seen the attitude before. I've put all this effort into it. I should get all of the rewards for it. I have a right to do this. So he not only presumes that he should be happy, but he presumes he's got a right to be happy. He presumes that whatever he owns is his. That's an easy presumption to make. I bought this. I paid for it. I put it in my garage. I put it in my basement. It's mine. He thinks everything's his. He pre- and maybe his biggest presumption is he makes a presumption about time. He presumes that he has enough time left to enjoy himself. And i got to tell you something. The next two lines show us that all of his presumptions are wrong. All of his presumptions are wrong. All of his self-reliance, all of his independence, all of his self-determination lead to his peril. The final act in the, in the parable. God shows up. And all of a sudden, with just a few words, and God does this, doesn't he? When he speaks, there's, there's this paucity of words. There's not a lot, but there, there's a tremendous truth revealed in them. He shows up, and he shows us who's really in charge. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, did you hear that? The whole crowd thinks he's wise. Why? Because he's rich. So the whole crowd thinks he's wise and thinks he's blessed and thinks that he has found God's favor because he has all this stuff. And the first word out of God's mouth as he addresses him, he calls him a fool. He says, fool, this night your soul is required of you. Now look at that closely and you'll see something. The most valuable thing this man has, the only thing he has that is eternal in his nature doesn't even belong to him. When God says it will be demanded of you, it means that he will render it up because it's not his. God created him. God is the one who formed him. God is indeed the one who blessed him. And now God demands his soul and he has to surrender it. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Your life work. You thought you were building some kind of security. You thought you were building some kind of legacy. They're just going to belong to someone else. I think God should have put, of course, I didn't write scripture, so. You can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. Verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, when he talks about treasure for himself, there's an implied contrast with heavenly treasure, with eternal treasures. And when he talks about uh, not rich towards God, it talks about living for God instead of for oneself, doing everything you do uh, for the glory of God. We were singing about it earlier. So there's, there's some great teaching there. Very clear connection with the first four previous lessons. What about, what about these following four? And it seems, again, they seem unrelated, but I'm going to tell you something. The following four lessons, the four lessons in the last third of the chapter, are identical but opposite of the four lessons in the first third of the chapter. So you have four lessons, the parable, and four more lessons. They're the same. They're only deeper. And And these are only given to the disciples. Jesus stops talking to the crowd and he begins addressing the disciples. 
So here's what it looks like. In the first third of the chapter, verses 8 through 12, we're about worry and trust. Where are you going to place your trust? What are you going to worry about? So, so are verses 22 through 31 in the second third of the chapter. They tell us not to be anxious. They tell us not to worry. So that's great, uh, but when I'm worried, I need something more than somebody to tell me not to be anxious. I need more than somebody telling me, stop worrying. You know, you're, you're, you're making a groove here in the carpet. Stop worrying. That doesn't help me because I can't just stop worrying. Well, what do I do about it? Well, these verses give us a way to handle this. They say, seek the kingdom. Seek the kingdom. Well, I'm seeking the kingdom. I'm not finding it. Uh, or, uh, I am seeking the kingdom. I'm waiting for it to come. A lot of people think the kingdom is going to come someday. Okay? But if we look at Scripture carefully, we find out that Jesus is the kingdom. Jesus is the kingdom. Jesus keeps on telling people, the kingdom has come. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is here. If you've seen me, you've seen the kingdom. How many times did Jesus say, if, if I've come near, the kingdom has come near? I wish he had made it clearer. I wish he would have said, Conrad, the kingdom is near. Conrad, the kingdom is further away. Get it? He didn't choose to be that clear. But Jesus is the kingdom. We're in Jesus. Jesus is in us. We have the Holy Spirit. Jesus is up there with the Father, seated at the right hand in heaven. Jesus is the kingdom. If we want to put aside our anxiety and our worry, we seek Jesus Christ. We put our focus on him, and he will give us all that we need to get through whatever we're trying to get through. In the first third of the chapter, verse 6 and 7, we're about being worried over whether or not we'll be provided for, what we'll eat, what we'll drink, so on and so forth. Verse 32 and 34 tell us that we can count on God's provision because he loves us. That he's clothed the lilies and he, he knows about the sparrows and he knows what we need to eat and everything. And because he loves us, he will provide for us even more than those things. And, and we know that he'll do that because God is true and faithful to his promises. And he has promised us the kingdom. Indeed, he has already delivered the kingdom to us. The first third of the chapter, verses 4 and 5, speak about being fearful, being worried, uh, fearful of worldly things, of people and situations. And in the last third of the chapter, verse 35 through 48, Jesus tells the disciples that they'd be better off ignoring the things of the world and spending their time getting prepared for his return. Don't worry about these things. They really don't have any eternal impact. What has eternal impact is what's going to happen when I come back and everybody stands before me. And so your job is not to worry about tomorrow, not to worry about your situation, but to tell people about me. First third of the chapter, verses 1 through 3, talked about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees leading unholy lives, preaching holiness, living a lie. They were living a lie. And verse 46 through 53 of the last third of the chapter talks about sacrificing everything for the sake of the truth and seeing that a day is coming when a reckoning will occur. Those who are with Jesus will 
be with him eternally, and those who are against him will enter into condemnation. So there we have the parable of the rich fool. And taken in context of all of chapter 12 of Luke, we find out that our lives aren't about the worldly things, that we have some decisions we have to make, how do we perceive ourselves as opposed to how we perceive Jesus Christ, how we get along with him. Do, and, and the real question at the bottom of all that is, do we trust Jesus Christ or do we trust ourselves more? Do we sometimes doubt about Jesus Christ and revert to our own uh, devices on things? Do we live our lives as if we're in charge or as if he's in charge? And, and that first third is really do we value our possessions more than we value Jesus Christ? Now, I think for, for us at Warrington Bible Fellowship, I think those are kind of no-brainer questions. I, I, I think we know that. If you've been with us for a while, um, you, you know what our character and nature is. We're, we're a giving congregation. Uh, you know, we, we're, we give liberally of our finances. We give liberally of our time. We give liberally of our resources and our gifts. So I think we know about the material thing. Uh, and, and I like that because it shows Jesus Christ. It gives us an opportunity to go out in the community and show the love of Christ. But that, that's the easy part, seriously. You know, none of us, I, I'm assuming none of us here knew Lonnie Holloway, the guy that was buried in his car. Anybody know him? I'm just assuming he was a nice guy. I'm assuming that it was quaint and charming that he wanted to be buried in his car. But even as we hear the story, there's something just a little bit uncomfortable about it, isn't there? Isn't there something you kind of want to scratch your head and go, what did we think was happening here? Could it be that Lonnie might have had a little bit of a flawed perception of what eternity was all about. I, I don't know. I didn't know the man. Don't know if he was saved. But we all know deep down inside that we can't take those worldly things with us. We, we don't really have to ponder that that much. And this whole teaching here in chapter 12 tells us that uh, we should understand that everything that we own really belongs to God. He will distribute it as he sees fit. All we need to do is surrender it to him. All we, need to, we, we shouldn't be clinging to it. We shouldn't identify ourselves with our worldly belongings. We shouldn't, we shouldn't place all of our value and all of our trust in them. But there's a deeper lesson here for believers. And, and see, that's why Jesus turns from the crowd and starts talking to the disciples in that last third of the chapter. There's something profound that he wants them to see here. We can all give our stuff to the Lord. We give our material stuff to the Lord, but can we give him our fear? Can we give him our doubts? Can we give him our anxieties? Oh, now we're getting, now we're getting into some tough stuff. Because when I have anxiety, I, I, I don't know how to give it away. I don't know how to stop playing those tapes in my head. When I have fear, I don't know how to put the fear aside. 
okay, well, you know, the Scripture told us to set our sights on Christ, to seek Him, to seek the kingdom. If I can set those things aside, um, focus on Christ, maybe my heart will calm, maybe I'll find some peace. But maybe it's even harder than that. Can we give Him our can we give him our expectations? Can we render unto the Father our dreams? Can we give him our hope? Can we render to him everything when our kids don't turn out the way we expect them to? Can we place on the altar our dreams when we lose our home, when we lose our job? when members in our family turn against us? Can we give all that to him and not worry about how it's going to come out? You know something, we we all believe, again, if you've been with us for a while, we all believe God is sovereign, amen? We confess it. We're afraid of what he might do. We're, We're concerned over whether or not in his sovereign authority he's going to do something we don't like. God's sovereign, just don't take my kids. God's sovereign, just don't take my job. God's sovereign, just don't make me say I'm sorry to my spouse. Can we render those things to him? Can we surrender everything we are and everything we have, including everything that's in our hearts? Can we surrender them to our Father? And be happy with what he's given us rather than worried about what we don't have. That's the lesson of the parable of the rich fool. Surrender everything and find peace. Seek the kingdom, seek Jesus Christ, and lose your worries and anxieties. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you've given us a way. Lord, that there is light in the darkness that there is a way to navigate rough waters. Uh, Lord, your word reveals the character and nature of you, your son, the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would plant in our hearts that strong desire to go there, Father, that, that strong desire to be in his presence, to be touched by the comfort of the Holy Spirit, to be filled with his presence, Father, to be filled with the comfort of just being close to you. Lord, help us to set our eyes on that and be satisfied in Christ alone, Father, that he might be our all in all, that he might become the vision for how we go forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.